Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the wonderful, magical, transformative trade deal that on Wednesday, January 15th, we finally got to see. It's the economic and trade agreement between the United States of America and the People's Republic of China, phase one. This is a rather long episode, but we have included timestamps so you can skip to the bits you're interested in if you'd like. And first of all, you are going to hear from us, delightful. And then you're going to hear from two ex-negotiators. The first is Darcy Vetter. She's now at Edelman Public Affairs, but in her former life, she was the chief agricultural negotiator for the U.S. Trade Representative's office. And then we'll hear from Lauren Mandel. Before he joined Wilmer Hale, which is a law firm, Lauren helped to negotiate rules over technology transfer and investment on behalf of the U.S., also at the USTR. Then we're going to talk a bit about why the business community seems to be so happy with the deal. And we will finish with my colleague Simon Rabinovich in Shanghai to tell us about the reaction in China. So let's begin. First, let's recap what's in this deal. And basically, it's what we laid out in our episode from about a month ago when this thing was first announced on December 13th. There are new rules on intellectual property and trade secrets. There's some new market access. And China agreed to buy a lot more American stuff. There is a novel enforcement or dispute settlement chapter. And just to give a quick summary of how that works, basically, if there's a complaint that one side hasn't been sticking to the deal, then both sides are supposed to to talk to each other. And if they can't resolve the problem, then the accusing side gets to apply some sort of remedy. And then the other side, the one that's just gotten hit by the remedy, presumably the Chinese, I suppose, they can decide do I still want to stay in this deal? In which case, they just have to take it. They can't retaliate. Or do they want to hit back? Do they want to retaliate and withdraw from the whole deal? That's how that works. So Chad, is this deal everything you've ever wished for and more? No, it doesn't cover industrial subsidies or Chinese state-owned enterprises. Is that an issue that you've mentioned before? Because I feel like you should have brought it up before now. I think I did. Uh, it's. I'll have to go back and listen to, to some of the episodes, but I, I have a feeling that it's something that I've mentioned before. Okay. Any other hot takes? So the purchase agreements in this deal are massive, and it turns out they're even bigger, I think, than what was anticipated back in December when we first heard about the deal. It, it turns out, for example, that the products that are covered by these purchase commitments it's only about 73% of U.S. exports to China. So that means this massive export growth, the $200 billion worth of additional exports over the next two years, between 20 and 2021, that's coming off of a much smaller base, and it makes it even less likely that those numeric targets are actually going to be hit. What that also means is there's about $50 billion of American exports to China that aren't covered by this deal, in which... China's not going to be penalized if it actually decides to import nothing in those non-covered products. Wait, so it sounds like you want them to manage all the trade and not just 73%? So when you go down this path of managing trade, it turns out you need to manage all of the trade. If you say so. Okay, after those flaming hot takes are out of the way, let us dig into the weeds. So... 
on to our first ex-trade negotiator. <clears throat> Darcy, hello. Hello. Could you tell us a bit first about your experience negotiating with the Chinese, maybe a brief rundown of your CV? Sure. Uh, I have spent or spent at one point a lot of my time negotiating with the Chinese on various agriculture issues. Um, most recently was first the deputy undersecretary at USDA that oversaw the Foreign Ag Service and um, international agriculture at USDA, and then was the chief agriculture negotiator at USTR from 2014 to 2017. So, um Many of the issues that you see in this phase one China deal were under very active discussion when I was in those roles and we were trying to uh, negotiate an end to restrictions on a wide variety of agriculture products into the Chinese market. What have been some of the main frustrations when it comes to agriculture getting those products into China? Well, I think... Um, Sanitary and phytosanitary measures, so animal and plant health and human food safety, have been particularly vexing when it comes to China and how it forms its regulations, in part because with a country like China, you see that some of the overly burdensome licensing or registration or inspection or multiple layers of scientific review that they require, it's hard to tell whether it is overt protectionism, lack of capacity uh, within their technical experts, um, lack of just, you know, person power to be inspecting equally at all ports and to administer in a very large country with very high trade volume, if it is responding to the fact that they have had serious food safety scandals and lack of trust in their own system. And so in an attempt to clamp down domestically, they also over-index on what they do on imports. And so peeling back the layers and trying to get consistent treatment and having them obey or follow international trade rules and best practice has always been difficult. Uh, and just when you think you've worked through it, sometimes they enact a whole other uh, series of, of regulation. So it's trying, to say the least. So so what struck you in terms of the, the longstanding problems that this deal could resolve? There's actually a fair amount of good and solid technical work in the agriculture section of this text. Uh, I think that the text around new and expanded access for beef and for meat and processed meat products are probably the provisions that seem the tightest, simply that China will, in fact, recognize the safety assessment of the United States and will, in a very certain period of time, allow those products entry. You know, in 2017, a protocol was negotiated that allowed entry of U.S. beef for the first time since BSE, a very longstanding negotiation and issue, um, but it still had a lot of uh, complications to it. It was relatively onerous. It only recognized beef from cattle under 30 months. This gets rid of a lot of those remaining restrictions. And so 
BSE is essentially the mad cow disease, and that was an outbreak in 2003, 2004, so a long, long time ago. Yes, 2003 initially, um, so very longstanding restrictions. China really one of the few remaining countries that had not reopened to U.S. product. What else? Um, I think there is some new access for poultry, for dairy products. Um, We saw the announcement before this deal was signed that um, did open the market to U.S. poultry. This provides even more specificity around that. Uh, For dairy products, uh, it looks like it's making registration processes and reopening the market for some specialty milk products that have been difficult to get in. Uh, There's some language in the dairy annex that looks like it allows for some additional inspection, some questioning around infant formula, how certain that access will be, I don't know. But certainly progress and getting rid of just some of the really bureaucratic steps, Um, additional, again, registration, licensing, uh, onerous processes are dealt with uh, throughout. Um, The problem, I think, with all of these technical regulations is there's nothing that says China might not come up with some brand new regulatory process or registration or new way of implementing a food safety law that has the potential to put us back at at square one. But given the um, existing playing field, I do think this is, is progress. One thing I heard was, was, was a very welcome part of the deal was a bit about approvals for agricultural biotechnology products. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? I do think there are some procedural advances in this text. Some very common sense treatment of how these applications would be processed. That's really positive. Uh, there's language in there that says it will be an average of 24 months for China to review and make a decision to either approve or disapprove a biotech event. The word average gives me some pause. Um, that may mean individual applications could take much longer, uh, and there's really nothing that would be out of compliance for that. Um, how many approvals have to be approved before you establish what the average is. Um, There's some questions about how that will operate. One of the biggest concerns that U.S. biotech developers have had about China's system is that they won't start reviewing an application until that event has been approved in its country of origin. So a company might submit their dossier, the scientific information, to a U.S. and a Chinese authority on the same day, but the United States would have to run its complete application process and approve it before China would consider that application eligible for review. That is not addressed in this text. And so that still could be many months to years of process um, that a company would have to wait before China even begins their process. So if I had to ask for your overall hot take on the extent to which this this deal resolves trade issues between the US-China in agriculture and then the more structural trade issues, what would your take be? Overall, I think this deal does make progress, and it does make progress on removing barriers for a number of products that are of great export importance to the United States. What I question, however, is 
whether there is an adequate mechanism to then enforce these protocols, uh, whether the language is tight enough in some of it to really be able to assure um, follow through, and whether it was worth it for this outcome to endure a period of more than a year when our exports to our largest export market were cut in half. Um, there's been a pretty big cost to, to the ag industry of the trade war that brought us to the table to discuss this, and you know, time will tell whether there is ultimately uh, a benefit. Okay, and and I suppose from the perspective of the Trump administration, they would respond to to some of those concerns by saying, "Well, look, we've 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 also got a ton of Chinese purchases of agricultural products. So you know, even if some of these structural barriers don't get removed, we've hard coded in the outcome that we want, which is this huge um, increase in the in the value of purchases." So let's talk about those, the American lurch towards managed trade. Um, what what caught your eye in, in this section? Well, I think the major thing that caught my eye was the same thing that caught the eye of many others, which is just the sheer numbers and the short period of time uh, to get to those numbers. Um, you know, obviously, we're looking at Twelve and a half billion above a high baseline of twenty-four billion in one year, um, and frankly, we're down at nine billion because of the impacts of the trade war. And I think the question is, how do you achieve that, and which products will see the benefit? Um, the other thing that caught my eye, of course, is the discussion that within different categories of products there are limits, but those limits are not being made public, so we don't know in which products uh, we should expect the biggest gains. Um, but the tariffs remain, and there are no commitments for uh, China to remove the tariffs on U.S. products, most of which are not competitive going into China now because of the retaliatory tariffs. So to hit those benchmarks, those high numbers of exports, they will have to exempt some products from tariffs. There's a lot of control we have ceded to China about which products will be exempted, who will get the exemption, will it be all state-traded enterprises, will it be private companies, will they try to drive products to particular regions, will they wait until periods of time when U.S. products are selling at a discount before they open up those markets? Um, how will they game that system? And will all products actually see the benefits? Will they take the retaliatory tariffs off of almonds but not walnuts? Will they um, you know, only let in certain cuts of pork or beef um, to you know, try and lower the prices for particular populations, et cetera? We don't really know how they will administer tariffs in a way that will let those products flow. What I worry about is that there will be some decisions made to simply meet those export targets in a way that could actually prevent us from forming the kinds of relationships with end users in China where over the long haul we would have seen stronger relationships and stronger exports. For example, if the tariff exemptions are granted only to SOEs, 
if they make big purchases and simply put them in stocks for the sake of meeting a target. Um, and so our exporters aren't actually working with the end users of the product, forming relationships, tailoring our product, meeting certain specs that go directly to what users need. I think about um, groups like the U.S. Soybean Export Council, who were in China for decades before they ever sold any soybeans. But their work with aquaculture experts in China has really developed that industry with our soybeans as the feed source. And so we're delivering to them soybeans, soybean meal that really meets what they need where they need it and in a more sustainable way than had they developed their industry without us. That's what we want. I want to know how are farmers, how are, how are American farmers supposed to feel about this deal? Are they supposed to do anything differently now? I think there is optimism that we aren't going to be ratcheting things up and making matters worse with China, that this represents a, a truce. But what I'm hearing is a bit of relief, but also a dose of skepticism. And I think the way farmers feel is in part the way the market reacted when this deal came to light. And you know, it wasn't this big spike in soybean prices. It was, in fact, some concern that there wasn't a clear numerical target for soybeans that they could count on immediately. I would also note that all of the purchases could take place in December of next year and China would still be in compliance. Now, that's not likely to happen. But with the lag in trade data, we won't know if we hit any of those benchmarks until March of next year, um, at which point farmers will have already purchased their seed for the year after and made those planting decisions. So while the purchase numbers are, I think, a hopeful sign for them that things will go back to normal, that maybe we'll see some new opportunities in China, I don't know that I would be you know, ordering my seed or planning what I'm going to plant based on that. Darcy, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Darcy Vetter, the former chief agricultural negotiator at USTR. Next, we spoke to Lauren Mandel, who's currently at Wilma Hale, and we should give the disclaimer that he is not representing the views of any of his clients. Before joining Wilma Hale, he was involved in negotiations with China. We asked him how. Uh, sure, sure. Up until uh, May of 2019, uh, I was the USTR staff lead on foreign investment, uh, inbound and outbound foreign investment policy. Uh, and in that capacity, I was involved both in the Section 301 investigation uh, of China, of forced technology transfer, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, beginning in December of 2018, when uh, there was this bilateral negotiation, I was involved for, for those five months. Uh, and so I was part of the, the broad team of USTR negotiators, advisors, uh, participating in the negotiations. Uh, my focus, given my expertise on foreign investment in particular, was largely on the forced technology transfer issues, as well as investment uh, market access. As you know, the tech transfer issues are addressed in part, at least in phase one, uh, whereas investment market access is largely absent, uh, with the exception of financial services market access um, at this point. Tell us a bit about the history of, of these negotiations. Uh, there was, of course, the, the WTO uh, accession negotiations, which took over 15 years, 18 sessions, uh, culminating in 2001. 
before those negotiations, before there was even a WTO, the United States and China were engaged in uh, the initial uh, bilateral investment treaty bit negotiations uh, in the 1980s. At the time, these were unsuccessful, uh, and they resumed again under the George W. Bush administration, and they significantly intensified under the Obama administration uh, in the second term. I was involved in those negotiations, over 35 rounds of negotiations uh, under Obama and uh, Bush. Uh, these negotiations have been on ice since 2017, but, but clearly you can see a bit of a through line in terms of the subject matter and focus uh, of those discussions and these more recent discussions. Uh, one more point in terms of the, the, the trade and investment negotiations and dialogue, alongside the WTO and the bit more formal discussions, uh, there have been these sustained dialogues uh, in the uh, Strategic and Economic Dialogue, the SED, which was begun by uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Hank Paulson on the U.S. side, and then the S and ED, the Strategic and Economic Dialogue under Obama. Uh, and so there have been lots of talks, and I think uh, it's important to view these talks as uh, a continuation of those uh, previous discussions, albeit uh, achieving uh, a quite uh, a different objective in some respects. Let's turn now to, to talk about the deal that the U.S. got with China. So in your view, how is it different from the others that the United States has negotiated in the past? It's really a unique deal uh, in, in many ways in terms of the scope of the deal, some of the specific provisions in the deal, the drafting approaches in the deal uh, are all uh, somewhat unique. Um, uh, I'll offer some comments on, the, on similarities and differences. Uh, on the differences uh, in terms of scope, the scope of the deal is much narrower than the typical uh, U.S. free trade agreement, which covers essentially all sectors uh, across the economy. Uh, it's also in the area of investment, for example, uh, much narrower than we cover uh, in, in our bilateral investment treaties. Um, uh, largely, the phase one deal covers issues the two parties have discussed for years uh, and where both sides have expressed some flexibility uh, for years. Uh, in terms of the specific provisions, you know, some of the pieces of the deal are grafted directly from U.S. free trade agreements, uh, including in the most recent U.S.-Mexico-Canada-USMCA agreement. For example, if you look at the intellectual property chapter, uh, there's language requiring, quote, fair, adequate, and effective protection of IP rights. This is very similar to language that uh, we just recently negotiated in the USMCA and other agreements. But then there are other rules uh, in this new phase one deal that the U.S. has never negotiated in a trade agreement, to my knowledge, uh, but which reflect longstanding U.S. US asks uh, of China. For example, the provision requiring parties to provide in their domestic law uh, that if plaintiffs make out a prima facie civil case for trade secret misappropriation, then the burden of proof shifts to the other side. That's something that we've asked China in foreign dialogues in the SNED, for example, but where we've never achieved that in a in a formal binding agreement or in a another FTA with another party. I'm, I'm just going to interject here for listeners that this burden shifting thing is, is kind of a big deal. Um, it means that the company that you are accusing of stealing your secrets has to prove that they're not stealing your secrets. So essentially, it makes those cases easier to win. Then on the drafting, uh, you know, the approach from a, a trade law perspective is really very different. Uh, uh, there's been a lot made of the of the depth and length of this deal, uh, you know, over 80 pages, uh, nine chapters. But when you look at the, the deal, 
you don't see a lot of the features, including uh, definitions and clarifications uh, that you have in many of our free trade agreements, such as the USMCA. If you had those additional bells and whistles, the deal would be probably three or four or five times longer. Um, it, my view is that uh, the intention on the U.S. side in particular was to sacrifice some legal precision for a more plain English drafting approach. Uh, I think there may have been a view that because the agreement doesn't include traditional state-to-state dispute settlement decided by third-party arbitrators, that we don't need all that language. We can say to China, you know what we meant, uh, and we can enforce our rights as we see fit. We don't need to worry about the risks of third-party interpretation or misinterpretation. Uh, Now, clearly, there are potential downsides of uh, a perceived lack of legal precision. Uh, It may make it more likely that you'll have compliance issues in the future. Um, One final comment in terms of comparing uh, old and new agreements, this agreement, uh, there are very few exceptions uh, in this agreement. In most of our agreements on the U.S. side, you have national security exceptions, you have exceptions for areas like procurement, uh, exceptions that carve out uh, subcentral actors, for example, in the U.S. case, the, the states. But here you don't have many of those exceptions. You have rules that are cleanly, uh, clearly stated in plain English. There is an attempt, uh, evidently, to avoid circumvention on the Chinese side. Now, again, that may be effective in addressing concerns about circumvention and also lack of clarity, but could also create their own risks of, uh, of likelihoods of disputes over compliance. Uh, clearly, whether there's a national security exception in the agreement or not, uh, China is not going to hesitate to violate the agreement if it feels it's necessary to do so uh, for security reasons. And same thing on the United States side. And you can look at other exceptions and see that regardless of the presence of, of the exception, some of those uh, sacred cow policy areas uh, will, will likely predominate uh, in terms of the implementation and compliance uh, uh, of this agreement. Digging through the details of, of the deal, which do you think are the, the most important provisions that represent essentially Chinese concessions that are going to improve the life for American companies that are, that are working and operating in China? I think there are a lot of important and interesting nuggets in the deal uh, that could be very valuable for U.S. companies. Uh, I'll highlight a few that are in my areas of expertise. In intellectual property, I think the extensive rules on trade secret protection have been a major priority for U.S. companies operating in China, uh, and they're very impressive and very detailed uh, rules and commitments uh, in this agreement. Uh, They will require significant judicial reform uh, in China with respect to civil and criminal liability for trade secret misappropriation. Uh, They create obligations on China. uh, When China obtains trade secrets or confidential information from a U.S. company, for example, in an administrative approval uh, scenario, uh, obligations on China to keep that information confidential, uh, to refrain from uh, providing it to uh, uh, actors within or outside the government who should not see it. Uh, There are provisions on enforcement, on penalties that are novel. I think all of these are quite valuable for U.S. companies. On technology transfer, I I should highlight uh, that uh, there's one area uh, that has not received very much attention but is quite important, and that is in the area of indigenous innovation. Uh, China committed in the deal uh, to not require or to refrain from requiring U.S. companies to use local technology in exchange for receiving an advantage, such as a subsidy. Uh, China has historically used uh, carrots, such as subsidies, to cajole U.S. companies uh, and to require U.S. companies effectively uh, to use local technology 
which crowds out uh, U.S. technology exports uh, and causes other distortions in the economy, trade and investment. Uh, and this was a sticking point, for example, in the BIT negotiations. Uh, and, and so I think it's quite significant that it was achieved in this negotiation. Um, one more area I'd highlight is on financial services. Uh, the commitments on financial services feature a level of detail really that's extraordinary, not normally found in U.S. trade agreements. Uh, for example, with respect to licensing procedures uh, for electronic payment services providers, asset management companies, also in the areas of insurance, securities, uh, fund management futures. These are areas where China has dangled market access, full market access, no uh, foreign equity caps uh, for quite a long time, but they've often done so with these long phase-in periods, two, five years. Here, China's committed to drop foreign equity caps by April 1st, uh, which again, it, it may be that this was inevitable, but to have a, you know, a date certain and have that date be just, uh, just around the corner is quite significant for U.S. companies in those sectors. I have a question about how much this deal is going to benefit non-U.S. companies. So I guess companies from Europe or, or Japan. Where has the U.S. done the rest of the world a favor with this deal? I think on rules, assuming Chinese compliance with these obligations, uh, some of the rules will provide direct sort of de facto uh, MFN for European and other companies that operate in China. We've discussed, for example, the area of um, intellectual property protection. Uh, it's highly likely that those rules will be drafted in a, in a non-discriminatory way. It'll provide benefits uh, for U.S. companies and other companies alike. Uh, if you look at tech transfer, other areas, we've already seen the benefits of these commitments that uh, very recently, I think in anticipation of this outcome of a phase one deal, China has in their domestic law codified rules that will prohibit uh, forced technology transfer within their system. Those are rules that now benefit uh, all operators in China, not just U.S. companies. Now, now clearly there are some areas, though, uh, where th this deal will be viewed less favorably and, and have, have already been viewed less favorably by non-U.S. players. Obviously, on purchases, uh, the, the purchasing commitments here, some outside the United States will fear that uh, this will divert purchases away from their uh, producers and their sellers. On market access, for example, on financial services market access, ag market access, it's not at all clear that the benefits, that, that for example, on licensing, et cetera, that, that I've described will be accorded to uh, non-U.S. companies, which could create uh, in the view of, uh, of non-U.S. Uh, governments, it could create uh, WTO inconsistency, MFN uh, considerations. And so there, again, in market access areas, I think you'll see less benefit perhaps uh, for uh, non-U.S. companies. Okay. Um, and where are the gaps, you know, the unfinished business? I think the most obvious unfinished business uh, is negotiating these commitments in areas where the United States and China have had historical, just fundamental differences of view. And these include uh, the role of state-owned enterprises, uh, SOE subsidies, uh, data flows, uh, information flows. I think other areas uh, in terms of most obvious unfinished business are the broader discriminatory market access limitations faced by U.S. companies. Again, financial services is one area where this deal makes significant progress, but uh, China has a, a negative list, uh, a list of uh, market access restrictions, uh, the most recent version from July of 2019, which continues to impose broad uh, joint venture requirements, foreign equity caps, other restrictions on foreign investors that make operating in China inhospitable for some companies or impossible for others. 
One more point in terms of uh, unfinished business would be a lot of the language, the commitments in this phase one deal uh, on IP, on tech transfer, uh, other areas uh, are drafted as general commitments. The United States, we know, was seeking uh, so-called specific commitments to repeal, amend problematic uh, laws and regulations. Uh, I think clearly in the next stage, uh, to the extent there is a next stage, providing some more specificity in terms of China Chinese obligations to revise, amend, repeal its laws and regulations will be a huge priority. Last question. How easy do you think it will be to agree a phase two deal? I think it, would, it will not be easy. I think that uh, it's very striking in the deal uh, that the one sentence in the deal about phase two uh, provides very little assurance that there will be a phase two now or ever. Uh, and all public comments from both the U.S. side and Chinese side, I think, have attempted to tamp down expectations on both the timing and likelihood of a phase two deal, uh, particularly in the next uh, year or so uh, on the U.S. side where there's an election uh, happening uh, on the Chinese side where they will have to take a lot of effort internally to seek to educate, to comply with these these new phase one obligations and to, to immediately go into phase two uh, is, is a significant ask. Uh, I don't think it's impossible that there could be um, additional uh, a phase two deal or, 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 fa- or mini phase 1.5 deal that will finish address some of the unfinished business from phase one. But I think having a, a fully comprehensive phase two deal that addresses the really the systemic issues that were identified in the Section 301 report that have been irritants in the relationship for, for many years on the trade and investment side, I think the odds are, are, are not, not great at this point. And a huge thank you to Lauren. Okie dokes. Next, I want to talk about the reaction to the deal that we've seen so far um, with with the example of the US-China Business Council. Um, So I think this matters because, in theory, this trade war was fought on their behalf. um, And, you know, at the same time, they've been clearly fairly annoyed by the fact that all these tariffs are, uh, are happening. And and obviously, it's fairly striking that in this deal, in this phase one deal, most of the American tariffs are still in place. That said, the U.S.-China Business Council has been fairly positive in their reaction to this phase one deal. So on this, have they basically been bought off? All these purchases, does this just mean that their members are looking to cash in now? Oh, how uncharitable of you, Chad. Um, so they, they held a conference call and they said, quote, you know, the USCBC and its members are obviously very eager to support the administration and its efforts to really achieve those targets. Um, but then, you know, later there was a comment that obviously they didn't support managed trade. But there's another interesting point that I wanted to highlight, which is that something that, that Jake Parker mentioned. He's at the US-China Business Council. And the backstory of this is that one of the criticisms of the deal was that it it wouldn't remove uncertainty. It would be too easy to blow up and that the tariffs could come back into effect. But but Jake seemed to have been reassured or, or comforted that, that this wouldn't happen. Or if it did happen, it wouldn't be so bad. Important from our perspective is the part of the agreement that talks about the proportional response that will be taken if the other side doesn't faithfully live up to its commitments. So we think that what that will do is ensure that 
if the other side does not live up to its commitments, that means that we're not going to see December 15 tariffs come back into effect. We'll see a proportional response to whatever the action is, and it should create a little bit more of a certain environment for U.S. companies operating in the China market and the U.S. market, and hopefully create more certainty for their investments going forward. So call me a bit skeptical on this proportional response idea. Historically, at least when it when, at least when it comes to WTO disputes, the complainants always say that there's been more damage taking place than the defendant country does. So there's always this disagreement. And we also know that the Chinese don't tend to take unilateral action well. And so here, I guess we're just relying on the idea that China is just going to turn the other cheek and, and, and not retaliate. Yeah, I guess I guess the reason for them to turn the other cheek in this case would be the threat of the whole thing blowing up, right? So so China wouldn't retaliate um, because the whole deal would be at stake. Yeah, but that's not sustainable if the Trump administration continues to do what it's done historically, which is to respond disproportionately to problems with with more force. But sure, we'll see how it works out. Jake certainly did seem hopeful. We hope that this will ensure that the other side, when uh, not a sufficient amount of progress has been made on a concern, that they will not see a massive, overwhelming response. Instead, they'll have a very tailored and um, a a response that will be uh, much more proportional to whatever the lack of implementation is. And we have heard that pretty specifically uh, from both sides, both governments as well. Yeah, we'll see. This is resting on the assumption that this deal is designed to tie the hands of the Trump administration. And that just seems very different from anything they signed up to thus far. Okay, last segment, Um, the reaction in China. I asked my colleague, Simon Rabinovich, who is based in Shanghai and who covers the Chinese economy, what he had been hearing. I suppose you could say that there's been two different kinds of of reactions to the deal in China. Um, The first is the official reaction. Um, Official media and government statements um, have, uh, as you might expect, portrayed the deal in as positive a light as possible for China. Um, They've not been gloating about it or, or, you know, describing it as a victory, but they've been touting the fact that the U.S. and China were able to reach a consensus uh, and saying that this really ought to be a a shot in the arm for for businesses and for business confidence um, this year. Um, They've been very careful to include the assertion that the Chinese economy uh, is doing very well to make the point, um, uh, in their view, that China was not backed into this deal, um, that it was negotiating with a strong hand. Um, They've not gone into great detail in in analyzing the different uh, commitments and clauses, but they've said that all that China agreed to was uh, in line with its interests, in line with uh, the basic direction of reforms that were already being implemented, um, and that the various different commitments were equal and balanced between China and America. Um, in private, um, certainly amongst economists, amongst people you know, following it more closely, there have been uh, quite a few concerns expressed. Um, they come in a few different flavors. Uh, one is the, the view um, that the deal was one-sided, that much more is being asked of China than of of America. Uh, And of course, if you analyze the text of the deal, as as you guys have, uh, you know that China um, is uh, is being asked to change lots of different uh, rules and regulations, uh, whereas America is basically stating that its system is already uh, the one that that it ought to have. Um, there's then also concerns about the the purchase commitments, and uh, of course, this is something that a lot of economists uh, globally are a- 
asking, you know, is it really credible that China can buy um, as much from the U.S. as as they've now pledged to do? Um, And then finally, some people are saying that the deal is not substantively different from what was on the table in May, uh, and tariffs have have gone up since then. So, you know, was it right for um, the government here to drag things out as long as it did? Maybe they should have taken what was on the table in May, um, and then the economy would would be in better shape now. Um, So that being said, there's been a couple of pieces that have looked at it in in more detail uh, and partly uh, in response to into that criticism um, there was one article an online article published by the people's daily um, that uh, you know really went viral yesterday and it went through uh, the various different commitments in more detail uh, and and made the point you know, as I've said, that, that everything was in line with what China would have done anyways. But it also interestingly raised a, a couple of points um, that could become, you know, more contentious uh, in the coming months and years. Um, so one was in talking about China's purchase of farm goods from the U.S. It said that American products have got to be competitive, that America can't just raise prices knowing that there's a specific quota in effect that China has to hit. Um, and the second point was that if China fails to buy enough from the U.S., um, you know, including of tech products, um, if that's partly because the U.S. has been ret- restricting exports to China, then the fault would lie with the U.S. Um, for China not fulfilling its commitments. Um, so that piece was, was, I think, important and interesting in opening a window onto the way that China might potentially push back um, if if it doesn't hit the the demands of the deal, um, a second piece that was important was one written by an online account called uh, Taoranji Taoran Notes. This is an account written by a journalist who's been traveling with Liu He, um, and it's been the most sort of uh, semi-authoritative inside look. Um, at what the Chinese negotiators are are doing and thinking um, when it comes to negotiations. It came out with a piece yesterday saying that there are people who are, you know, being nitpickers about the deal uh, and they really shouldn't. The fact that there are people who are dissatisfied in China but also dissatisfied in the U.S. is the exact right place that you want to be in. If you have one side that feels like it's won an overwhelming victory, uh, then the deal's not going to be implemented successfully. Um, So that was the the apparently uh, Liu He endorsed argument for why why the deal's uh, a good one. Um, just one thought to leave you with is that, you know, we know that China has a, a great deal of, of strategic patience with this kind of thing. And given that it's a deal that, that, you know, unfurls over two years, that during that time there might be a change in the administration in America, there is a sense on the Chinese side that, you know, this is not a victory, but at least they've banked a truce. Uh, the tariffs are not going to get worse for, for the next few months, uh, uh, in the Chinese view at least. Um, and therefore this gives China, you know, time to go ahead and deal with its domestic economic concerns. It's very well aware that, um, the tech competition with America is only heating up. Um, you know, Xi Jinping has talked about China being in a long march in terms of having to develop its own technological base and sophistication. So there's a sense that the Chinese have, have basically bought themselves time. Um, you know, Liu He actually came out and said that China is in no rush whatsoever to get into the phase two negotiations. So I think they're, they're you know, basically hoping to have a period of, of trade, peace and stability for a while. Um, and then, uh, you know, after the election, 
uh, they'll reassess where things are. Uh, and that's also when we'll get a better sense of whether whether or not China is actually hitting the commitments, um, especially in terms of the purchases that, that were laid out in the deal, uh, and whether uh, it's President Trump or somebody else at the time, um, whether they're willing to, to kick up a big fuss about that. So that's, I think, where China is today. And with that, a huge thank you to Simon. Okay, that is a lot to digest. I hope you found some of it interesting. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode, this this mega episode. Thanks to the US-China Business Council for giving audio of their of their call. Thanks to Simon Rabinovich of The Economist. Thanks to Darcy Vetter at Edelman Associates. Uh, and thanks to Lauren Mandel of Wilma Hale. And thank you. Thank you, listeners, for getting all the way through this episode. Thanks to my colleagues here at the Peterson Institute. And again, as always, Ava Zhang and Heshuan Lee with their fantastic help with the data work this week. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because two because X-ray, two X-ray, negotiators X-ray negotiators are better, better than, than one. one. And to those loyal listeners who have stuck it out right until the end, a special treat. What was your favorite bit of the deal? I think that the favorite part of the text was the explicit mention that baby carrots were included in the other agricultural commodities bucket uh, for agricultural purchases. What is your theory for why that was the case? I think that baby carrots might be important to a particular member of Congress who wanted to make sure that there were commitments for those products, um, or that they could be included in uh, the purchases that China might make. And so our quiz for next week for Trade Talks listeners is figure out who that member of Congress was. (laughs) 